0: Hello pod, I'm Chris Hewitt and welcome to this very special edition of the Empire podcast. James Bond is 60 and yet he doesn't look a day over 007. Good joke there. Strong start to the podcast. No, but it's true, folks. James Bond turns 60, at least as far as the big screen is concerned, this year. Dr. No. The first film to introduce Ian Fleming's Super Spy, as played by Sean Connery, of course, back then, was released in UK cinemas in October 1962. Since then, of course, he's become the star of one of cinema's greatest franchises with six men, Sean Connery, George Lazenby, Roger Moore, Timothy Dalton, Pierce Brosnan and Daniel Craig, playing 007. Across 25 films, and no, I'm not going to list those, culminating in last year's No Time to Die, which saw Daniel Craig and his five film runs bond in spectacular and, shall we say, mold breaking fashion. The celebrations, as you might expect, are going to be suitably lavish and befitting of Bond. Where to start? Well, this weekend at the BFI Southbank and the BFI IMAX, there is a special James Bond at 60 event that has all kinds of incredible Bond screenings and panels, including a triple bill of Craig movies on the IMAX screen, a 60th anniversary screening of Doctor No, a 45th anniversary screening of The Spy Who Loved Me, a 35th anniversary, which makes me feel really old, screening of The Living Daylights. There's going to be a preview of Matt Whitecross's new documentary, The Sound of 007, which explores the music of the movies. And there's going to be much, much more besides. And next Tuesday at the Royal Albert Hall, that's October 4th, there is an incredible evening called The Sound of 007 in Concert, curated by David Arnold and featuring the likes of Garbage, who of course did the theme for The World Is Not Enough, Celeste, the Royal Philharmonic Concert Orchestra and headlined by Dame Shirley Bassey, who knows a thing about belting out a Bond banger or two. But that's not all. This Friday, September 30th, sees a special panel at the BFI South Bank with Neil Purvis and Robert Wade, who have written a lot of Bond over the years, Rory Kinnear, who played Tanner in the Craig movies, casting director Debbie McWilliams, and producer Michael G. Wilson. Michael G. Wilson, of course, is one half of the brother-sister team who have been intimately involved with Bond from the start. Barbara Broccoli is the daughter of Albert R. Cubby Broccoli, the super producer who, along with Harry Saltzman, launched Bond onto the big screen all those years ago, and whose Eon Productions remains the stalwart stewards of the spy. Michael is Cubby's stepson and has been a part of the Broccoli family since 1959 when his mother Dana married Cubby. Barbara came along just a year later in 1960. Initially both Barbara and Michael were only loosely involved with the Bond franchise, sometimes looking at it from afar. Although Michael does cameo very briefly, blink and you'll still probably miss him to be honest, in Goldfinger. But as they got older, they naturally gravitated towards the family business. And that's really what E.ON is, despite its size, has been and will probably continue to be in the future. The Spy Who Loved Me is a pivotal film for both of them. It's where they both really got their first full starts on Bond movies. And Michael quickly took a creative role, co-writing five Bond films with Richard Maybaum, including my own personal favourite Bond film, Licence to Kill, which was a tricky experience, as you'll hear. Meanwhile, Barbara was learning her trade at her father's side as a producer on the Bond films. And when Cubby sadly passed in 1996, the two became the franchise's custodians as producers and remain in charge to this day. So there's a lot to talk about, as I found when I sat down with him in the boardroom at E.ON, which is a beautiful but unassuming building that's tucked away almost out of sight, out of mind, on Piccadilly in London a few weeks ago. We talked about their experiences with Bond through the decades, the, and the different Bond actors through the decades. And finally, their decision to, spoiler alert, kill Bond with no time to die. I figure it's been long enough. If you don't know that by now, then where have you been? And if you don't know that by now, then what are you doing listening to a Bond podcast? But they also talked about where that leaves the character, not just a Daniel Craig incarnation, and the franchise. and They were in great form, reflecting on the Bond movies through the years and their involvement with them. So here we go. The real authors of all James Bond's pain, Barbara Broccoli and Michael G. Wilson in actual Bond boardroom. Enjoy. We are delighted to be joined on this very special podcast, Celebrating Bond at 60 by Barbara Broccoli and Michael G. Wilson. How are you both? Good, thank you.
1: Good, thanks. Excellent.
0: And uh, I should say, we are in the boardroom at E.ON. This is
1: where it all happens. This is
0: where the magic happens. Uh, What would you say has been the most pivotal decision taken in this room for (laughs) for the both of you?
1: I would say that the the casting of Daniel Craig, which happened in this very room uh, when we had uh, the studio heads here. We had Howard Stringer and Amy Pascal, Michael, myself, the director. And um, the decision was made at this very table.
0: At this very table? Yep. Wow. Okay.
1: And uh, we never looked back. Great decision.
0: Yeah, very much so. And of course, this is what's interesting about this room. This is the first time I've been in this room because I've never been up for bond. Barbara, can you believe it?
2: Oh, what an oversight.
0: I know. It's Rose a shocker. Because you didn't shave. If you've taken the beard off, it would have been a shoe. If I just uh, um, dropped 60 pounds and and, and worked out a little bit, I'd have been fine. Uh, But this is the first time I've been in this room. And what's interesting about it, apart from the coaster, you wouldn't know that this is the Bond room.
1: (laughs) We actually, to be honest, we don't use this room too often, do we? We only use it for large gatherings. You see there's a piano here, so... Uh um, we do quite a lot of theater and often we have musicals that we're doing so that's for there so we do do castings in here uh and we do big meetings like marketing meetings and things like that but other than the big decision i just referenced i don't think we have too many other big uh meetings i mean you know consequential meetings
2: yeah we we usually meet just in the room above us which uh, and uh, around a round table Mm. Which is more in keeping with the decision-making process with everybody
0: involved? Yes, because this is a, a bit of a spectre table. If yeah. I, am honest, it and is. That must it's a be, big old table. Yeah, it's a I big, think it, yeah. What is
2: it? Seventeen feet long, twenty feet long, something, something like that. that. Yeah.
1: But often we have you know mm. meetings that involve at least this many people. One that you know, big marketing meetings, things yeah. like that anyway you're here
0: mm-hmm. I am here absolutely but and it's fascinating because you know at the heart of bond now as we're entering you know bond at 60 one of the fascinating things about eon is that it's still so much a family business and I, I wanted to delve a little bit into your personal connection with the character and with the franchise over the years uh, going racing through the decades as much as we possibly can of course and It starts in the '60s. Obviously, Doctor No is about to be 60 years old. Uh, Barbara, you were just a a, a bairn, as they say, Mm -hmm. (laughs) at the time. I was.
1: I was uh, in Jamaica. The one and only time I ever wore a bikini, Um, (laughs) and yeah, I was. I was a year and a bit.
0: You're in a bit. So, so memories of Doctor No, I'm guessing, are are not forthcoming. They're nope. maybe a little fuzzy. But, uh, but Michael, you were very much uh, you know around the machine as well, it was beginning I, to get into place. I'd
2: come over for holidays. I was at university in the United States, California. And so I um, I saw the film in the theater with a few of my friends, and that was my introduction to James Bond. Mm. Besides having heard it on the holidays, that was going to be made
0: and, and mm. that. You know. But did you know what was? Did you know what it was going to be when you when you well, saw it for the first I, time?
2: I had come over and seen. I went to. I was the cubby took me to Pinewood, and I just was on the set where they were doing um, something with Sean at the, But I, it was. Um, I can't remember very much about it. Mm. You know, it wasn't, of course, uh, famous or. No one knew what, well, I guess Cubby and Harry knew what, what they, they had, but I had no clue yeah. what they had.
0: Yeah, and, and the machinery, it, it slowly but surely, it begins to to snowball and roll and roll and become this phenomenon. And a couple of years later, you're camu cameoing in Goldfinger. <laughs> yeah, Lee, of course, uh, you know, that was a great
2: team that they put together, a lot of people from Cubby's previous films here in the UK. Um, and, um, you know, Terrence Young and... Uh,
1: Dick Maybaum. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: And uh, Ken Adam. Ken Adam. Yeah. And, you know, um, it, was a, it was a really great group of people. Uh, and, um, and it was the team that went forward for the first four or five films. Uh, you know, um, it, was, it was quite, you know, it was, and it really created a new... Genre, yeah. You know, I think um, I, certainly when I saw the film, I think it was the first time I had ever seen a hero uh, just kill somebody in cold blood with uh, without a lot of passion involved. Uh, and uh, you know, when he says uh, that was a Smith and Weston, and you've had your six. Yes, that that really you know was quite a departure from. From uh, what we'd ever seen before in in cinema, and uh, so, and of course, there were lots of other innovations in the way the group was put together, the way they edited it, the way they designed it, music, everything about it was uh, was was uh, unique, and and you know, as I said, it was it really put together the team
0: and uh, and Barbara, you're you're growing up. As the as this franchise begins to become a franchise, really, so you're traveling the world. I know there was a, a moment on You Only Live Twice where you you, you had a had a fever. Uh, but what was your what's your first real concrete memory of the Bond machine? For you? Well, I
1: think it was on You Only Live Twice. Yeah, uh, you know, going to Japan. You know, my parents brought my brother Tony, my sister Tina, and myself. We all went to Japan and, you know, it was such an exciting trip. I mean, Japan was just a magical place. We'd never seen anything like it. And I have very distinct memories of my sister and I at the tea ceremony because, you know, for little girls, seeing these beautiful women dressed in traditional clothes performing this tea ceremony, it was just incredible, you know. And, I mean, I just remember that very vividly. And then Thunderball, you know, with... Uh, being in you know being with the, the the actresses in Thunderball who were so sweet to us and being in the costume department with them and Luciana Paluzzi with her feathers you know playing with us and it was in fact I'm still in touch with Luciana Paluzzi and so many of the women and I think the women throughout the years of these films I you know the women have stayed very close the women who have been in Bond films even though they were in di- differing films you yeah. know have you know, kind of maintained relationships over the years. And it's really wonderful. And I've maintained many, many long-lasting relationships with them. And 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 obviously also, you know, with the crew. And so many people who are really family to us. Um, and that's the thing that I remember the most is, you know, I mean, that original team, you know, with Cubby and Ken and all those people, you know, they would be working together. 12 hours a day. And then they'd go have dinner together and they'd go to lunch on the weekends. And, you know, it was, they couldn't get enough of each other. I mean, it was really incredible. You know, they'd be they'd, working, socializing so much, you know, and it really, it, it was that atmosphere more than anything. It's the atmosphere of that creative force of all these incredible people laughing, joking, working, traveling. Families all intermingling and families becoming part of the business. You know, that's, that's the overriding
0: memory. And is that, is that something that, that atmosphere, is that something that the two of you have tried to maintain? As I say, it's a very much a family business, but, you know, how do you work out big decisions between the two of you? How, how do you handle disagreements or disputes? Are there any?
1: We don't disagree, I think, ever on. I mean, it's really unusual, not on the filmmaking. part of things, you know, people try, you know, people will, they'll go to one of us and get an answer they don't like, and then go to the other one. And even though we haven't (laughs) had a conversation, we tend to have the same reaction. It's sort of, you know, people go, that's uncanny, you know, but it's true. And it's because we learned under the stewardship of our dad, you know, and he, he raised us through this extraordinary franchise. And so we have, we try to maintain that sensibility
2: yeah it, it is a family uh a- enterprise in the sense that we we are family and and some of our family members are involved but it's also a family enterprise in the sense that the, there are many people on the film who are from successive generations and uh, I think they feel that the atmosphere is of that kind of an atmosphere that um, uh, we you know we uh, look after each other and and uh, have good relationships with our with our crew and and cast
0: and uh, i i want to move forward into the 1970s because the 1970s is uh well there's so many pivotal decades every decade is pivotal yeah. <laughs> in bond but it's a decade where you both officially become part of the of the ranks the bond ranks so to speak and you know The Spy Who Loved Me is an important film in, in many ways and you know Michael you you start you start to be uh, co-writer on the films uh, also um the Moore era was that an important one for you because that's really the first Experience you have of a bond? Connery and Lazenby, I imagine it's more of a tangential connection for, the, for you both.
2: Certainly yeah. for me, it was. Um, you know, I just met them briefly. Um, um, uh, my only involvement with Lazenby was when we went to uh, Switzerland and, and met him. And at, uh, I think it was the uh, Thanksgiving holidays. I was over there with, my, with Jane. And my wife, and uh, she was pregnant, but we went up to the top and had a look around. Yeah, so the real involvement for me was in the early 70s when I came over to be involved with, a lit- with uh, legal situations. I was a lawyer, and I was, uh, took a leave absence from a partnership in New York and Washington. And um, I started to get involved in the um, business of bond. And um, you know, then things with Cubby and Harry were not so. Uh, they were a bit tense, so I would go and try to deal with Harry and try to see if we, you know, try to make things work. And um, so, but slowly, I got involved. And by the time of Spy Love Me, I was involved
0: in uh, the filmmaking process. And Barbara, was it always inevitable that you would you would join the family business?
1: Well, you know, I look back when I was, you know, when I was really young, um, just, you know, watching my father's passion for these movies. And, you know, it's, I mean, I remember things like we take so many things for granted now, but, you know, in the old days, when you wanted to make an international call, you had to book it through the international operator and, and it would take hours and they would, you know, call you back to place a call and stuff. So I liked sort of at home being kind of my dad's secretary, you know, when I was like eight, nine, you know, things like that. So, you know, I would say, okay, I'll, you know, help you with the call. I'll wait for the call, I'll come get you with the call, you know, all those sort of things. And, you know, we would come to Pinewood, you know, when when we finished school, we would come to Pinewood. We would go on location and the holidays. So you know, I just loved, how could you not fall in love with what's going on? And so I just wanted to spend as much time as I possibly could with my father. You know, I just wanted to hang out with him. And, you know, as I've said before, if he had a pizzeria, I'd probably be making pizzas now. But, (laughs) um, But his passion for what he did, you know, he used to, he loved it. We would go out early in the morning on a location, you know, in the freezing cold and the mist and everything, we'd drive out and, and we'd watch, you know, as the trucks were pulling up and, you know, the catering guys would make a cup of tea and, you know, and he would say, you know, this is the circus coming to town. And you'd see, it was like unfolding the tents, all everybody, and then the magic would begin and the filmmaking process. And so... Yeah, I mean, of course I wanted to be involved in, in that. Who wouldn't, you know? Mm. Uh, so it wasn't until, again, Spy Who Loved Me, where I started um, in the publicity department, captioning stills, which is traditionally quite a boring job, but I loved it, you
0: know? <laughs> <laughs> so if we go back and we we we, uh, we sought out stills from Spy Who Loved Me, those, mm. those would be your captions.
1: Well, they would say, you know, they would say, because it was a boring job, so yeah. give it to the, Kid who's just arrived and trying, you know. Uh, so it was like, you know, a photograph of yeah. Barbara Bach and, you know, Roger Moore. So you have to come up with some clever way of describing it. And then you would type it all out and then you'd cut it into little strips and stick it on the back of the, yeah. of the photograph. I mean, now you, I mean, it's obsolete. I mean, now you do it all yeah. electronically. Um, so it would be, yeah. So that's how I started. But it meant that I could be around the sets. And, you know, the people that were photographing, you know, the, the unit photographer and the publicity department. And, you know, it was a lot of fun. A lot of fun.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, uh, and Michael, I want to talk about the, uh, the, the fact that you transitioned into becoming a, a writer on, on Bond. Uh, at what point did that happen for you?
2: Well, during, um, um, during the Moonraker situation, there was... Um, um, christopher wood um was the writer, and he was um, and then um and he wrote the script, and then he had some issues and um and Dick maybaum came on and had to do a lot of catch up um during the uh, filming to try to resolve the especially the ending of the so I worked with him closely, and at the end of it, he said, "Let's become writing partners though so, um, and um so we took on the next, we worked on the next five bonds after that together, and he passed away. And um, I, I sort of, you know, became, at, at that point, um, Barbara and I were becoming producers, so I mm. took on the producer role with mm. Barbara.
0: Yeah, it, it's, it's interesting that you, you, you say that, because obviously, you know, you wrote you know, License to Kill, I know it was, it was a difficult situation, but is one of my favorite, if not my favorite, Bond film, and I think over the years there's a, a lot of love for that movie that perhaps might not have been there at the time. But was that a, a that's your last writing credits? You didn't want to write after after Dick Bomb passed away.
2: Well, I think you know we, we took on a different um, area of responsibility. Barbara and I supervise writers, and mm. and um, you know there's a lot to do, and I think it's hard. Um, it's hard to, I, I was a producer and a writer at certain points, but, um, I think with, with Barbara and I, it was, we started to get more focused on the making the film and, uh, supervise the writers.
1: And the films got much bigger, Yeah. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> much more complicated. It and, is. you know, Michael has a, a background in engineering and science and all the stuff. So, I mean, all of his wealth of information has always been so valuable to the writers in terms of, you know, he understands construction of a screenplay, he knows all the mechanics, and he also knows all the sort of, has all the scientific, you know, knowledge to be able to go, that doesn't make sense. He's very logical. (laughs) Um, Which is really important because these, you know, they have to be, they have to make sense. These yes. movies in yes. some way, even though they're fantasy films, they have to be reasonably plausible. I mean, we always say that if a villain had all the resources and all the money in the world, could he make this thing happen? And it's on that basis that, you know, my, Matt, Michael's logic is, is put to use.
0: It has to be plausible that Bond would walk away from whichever situation he walks away from <laughs> well, until he doesn't walk away. Exactly. We'll, we'll get to that. We'll get to yeah, that. <laughs> we, get to, we get to the, yeah,
2: the plots. Uh, you know, sometimes they are somewhat fanciful, but they and some of the situations. But I think uh, supposedly there's some logic to them.
1: We always run it. We, you know, the writers always say, okay, "We'll run that up the Michael flagpole," <laughs> <laughs> and you know, and and there's always that kind of moment where particularly with the long collaboration with Rob and Neil. It's like we always go through these ideas and then we, we put some of them in the Austin Powers pile <laughs> where we go, okay, yeah, maybe maybe that's in the Austin Powers pile. So.
2: The, the test is whether I end up with my... Head in my hands or not, I think.
1: <laughs> or your head on the table, if it's really bad.
0: I'm looking for an indentation in yeah. this table, just upstairs, in case. You'll uh, upstairs, you'll see the indentation. Okay. <laughs> and, and Barbara, what about yourself? Have you, you know, obviously, um, were you ever tempted to, to become a writer? Uh, no, I imagine you I, have an input into the screen uh, screenplay. You
1: know, I'm not, I'm not a writer. I, I, I love the writing process. I love I love talent that's the thing that gets me out of bed in the morning. I love sitting in a room with really super talented people who like and you Neil <laughs> you're welcome okay uh, you know Rob Neil we've been uh, so many years working with them almost 20 years and you know the thing about them is you know they have such integrity and such enthusiasm and they're infatigable you know you, they'll They'll come in and they'll go, okay, we've got this idea. And we go, nah, mm, forget it. Wow. <laughs> they come out. They come back with another one and another one and another one. And and that's the kind of, you know, that that talent is incredible. Yeah. You know, and uh, all the writers we've worked with, and you know, these films are complicated. So you have different needs at different times, you know, and so it's always very tricky because you know, the other day we were with Rob the other day and he was saying, you know, how many times they've been fired. And we're like, <laughs> they're fired, but then they're rehired again yeah. because, you know, they're fired and then we bring someone out. And, they're, and they're, they've are they been incredibly resilient about all of that.
2: Yeah, I think you uh, sell yourself a little short on this. You're not a writer. I mean, the thing is you supervise these writers and you make them uh, make them. Uh, you know, be logical, and you understand story, you understand the structure, and and uh, you know very we have, much.
1: We have different approaches, and I think that we're very Michael and I are very compatible in the way we work with the writers.
2: So, and the other thing is, you know, Barbara's come up through the ranks, so she understands filmmaking from the from all the departments from the ground up, But she yeah. knows what it's like to be an assistant, and then um, you know um, more involved in and uh, working in the different areas you know from uh, all through the f- the production
1: well i grew yeah. up with so many of these guys you know um who all were starting you know people like chris corbel we started out at the same time you know and he's now you know second unit directing and we were all in the trenches together and and the great thing about filmmaking i think in general but these films in particular is you do feel we got each other's back you know we're we're in Tough situation sometimes traveling the world and you know we we're we're all looking out for each other we're, we all have the same purpose you know and um, and we just want to make a great movie and support the director and and make something that we're proud of because you know we make these movies for audiences we don't make them for ourselves you know we make them for an audience and we always bear the audience in mind we can't wait to uh, to finish the film and get it out there and sit in a room and. And hear people enjoying themselves and having fun, and occasionally, you know, crying, <laughs> which I kind of like.
0: Yeah, I, and again, we're going to we're going to get there. We're going to get there. We're going to get there. Absolutely. But it's, it's interesting that um, you talk about about that and about you know some of the, the the tough times that you've had, because after License to Kill, there's that legal wrangle. There's that mm. six years between License to Kill and Golden Eye we're now about to celebrate 60 years of Bond, but was that the point where it could have maybe just fallen apart completely? Did it ever get to that point? Or was there always light at the end of the tunnel?
1: Well, it was very, very difficult for many reasons. The, one of the main ones was that, you know, Cubby was not well after Licence to Kill, and um, he really wanted to turn it over to Michael and I. And, you know, we relied so much on him, and we wanted to, to make him proud. and. It was also, you know, a difficult time with the studio and legal issues that were going on, and also geopolitically. You know, it was a time when the Berlin Wall came down, and all everybody was saying, "Oh, you know, this is the the walls down, the world's at peace, everything's fine. Who needs James Bond?" And, you know, it was a it was a low point. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, Cabello always said, "You know, go back to the books." you know, go back to Fleming. And so that's kind of what we did with Goldeneye. We were just like, okay, what is it that makes Bond, Bond? And so we did a lot of research during that time. And um, we had some terrific people working on the script, uh, Michael France and, you know, various other people who contributed to the script. And we, uh, you know, we we just went for it. You know, we, we Got Pierce, and, and I think we made a terrific movie. Martin Campbell was a terrific director. And, uh, you know, to all those naysayers who said, you know, the world is a safer place and who needs James Bond, I think we had a good answer. And the answer was, you know, <laughs> unfortunately, <laughs> the world wasn't safer. It was even more dangerous with, with all the factions that had separated. Uh, and, uh, and I think we made a terrific Picture, and I think we had a fantastic run with Pierce. And uh, yeah, but it, it, you know, we were in a, we were in a tough spot.
2: Mm. Yeah, we also had to start a new studio yeah. at yeah. Leavesden, yeah. Yes. which is Warner's now. And, um, you know, that was a um, Rolls Royce aircraft back, uh, engine factory yeah. at the time, what uh, had been abandoned from a number of years when we took it over.
1: Yeah, and Tom Pevsner, our associate producer, was terrific. He went out, he was looking for spaces, and then Peter Lamont went out there, you know, wonderful Peter Lamont who'd been around since Goldfinger. And, you know, I remember we're standing there at this very dilapidated place, and Michael said, Well, Peter, what do you think? And he said, Well, we'll make it work. (laughs) Extraordinary. So, you know, and it wasn't the first time, and it wasn't the last time mm-hmm. Peter did that. Where, you know, you're thinking, how on earth are we going to manage this mm-hmm. on time, on budget? And he did it again and again and again.
2: Yep.
1: And that's mm-hmm. the kind of spirit that you find, you know, in particularly, you know. In Britain, uh, with the wonderful crews we have here, that can-do spirit—that mm-hmm. just they just won't be beaten down. You know, they'll yeah. always come up with a way of doing something, and uh, and we sure pulled it off. Extraordinary.
0: I mean, so so obviously, neither of you worked uh, on these movies with Connery or Lazyby, but you worked with Moore, as we discussed. You worked with uh, Timothy Dalton, uh, but Pierce and Daniel are the bonds that you. Cast the bonds that you found. Now, Pierce obviously had had his his brush with Bond just a few <laughs> years earlier. But what are your memories of the moment that you knew on Goldeneye that it was going to be okay, that this guy was going to well to nail it?
1: Just backing you up a little bit, mm-hmm. um, Roger. We were, you know, we were obviously around, but we weren't involved in that decision. But he was a huge part of our lives. Yeah. Um, he was, you know, incredibly close to Cubby. His entire family, the children, were all extremely close, so we really grew up uh, with them. And we were involved in the Timothy Dalton uh, decision, and you know, we love Timothy. We're, again very close to Timothy and his son, and, and you know he you know, he again went back to the books and he, his interpretation, you know, I think was, was pivotal because, you know, we went from the Roger Moore era, which was very lighthearted and fun and really reflected the times to the Timothy Dalton era, which was much darker. And those films, you know, when you look back, you know, I don't think that, for example, I don't think that Daniel, you know, Daniel... Being possible because of that, the change that had happened before—that you know we'd had—these films reflect the time. So Tim, going much darker, yeah. I think you know, had a really big impact on what followed after that. I mean, and I think Pierce was sort of had a little bit of the lighthearted, but also had the underpinning, and then of course Daniel brought tremendous uh, emotional complexity to the role. But you know, each one. It, Each actor has been distinct, but they've all kind of reflected the times that we're in. So we were involved in the Tim Dalton decision, which was really fantastic, and Pierce. um,
0: I think, think, um, as I said earlier on, I think uh, there's a lot of love these days for Dalton's two movies, and there's almost a sense of sadness he didn't get that third film.
1: I know. He would have made another great movie, but, yeah. you know, time, it, it you know, six years went by and he kind of moved on and it was all, everything had changed, you know, so unfortunately he didn't, but I, I love those movies too, and they were happy movies to make, weren't yeah, they? I mean, they License to Kill was tough um, because of my dad's illness and we were uh, in Mexico for a year, which was tricky, but. There was another
2: thing that Peter Lamont managed to yeah. take that to Cherubusco Studios and make it a <laughs> lot put it in a state where we could actually make a film there you know the uh it was a uh, shambles and and it was uh, uh it was another one of those peter lamont miracle <laughs>
0: peter lamont the miracle sounds like a title for the next bond film to be a but uh you also got the writer's strike as well on license we to kill which I, yeah yeah that, that was
2: a tough that thing we just yeah. we started the film you know we we had to write during. Oh, well, I was uh, in a situation where I was overseas writer, so I was exempt, and but um, Dick wasn't, so we had a problem. But we got through it. Absolutely,
0: and uh, and and so just with with Pierce and then and then Daniel, we've spoken in the past about the kind of the moment that you knew that Daniel was going to was going to work on screen mm-hmm. as Bond. But when you're scheduling these movies, the first movies, whether it's you know, Golden Eye or Casino Royale. Do you want to ease your bonds in? Do you want to have them, you know? <laughs> There's
1: no such thing, honey, let me tell you. They hit the ground running. I mean, with, with Pierce, what was uh, ex- very difficult was um, he had, just when we were planning Gold uh, Goldeneye, he had back surgery. So we had to reschedule because of back surgery. And uh, so we rescheduled the movie and when we say rescheduling you know you're talking about the the set building schedule along with everything else the actor's availability the locations the this the that so we had to because he he wasn't allowed to run for some period of time or you know do anything particularly physical because of his back surgery so we had to reschedule everything this was before he started and then unfortunately he had a a an accident with the pinky on his right hand, where he cut the
2: where he cut the whole the whole, the hand whole hand yeah. Hand.
1: So so then, I mean, as luck would have it, the Walther PPK rests on so the weight of the Walther PPK rests solely on the <laughs> pinky of the right hand. So <laughs> we started odds. with Pierce, you know, having to be very restricted in terms of how much he could run and, yeah. and he couldn't hold a gun. So, um, but he That's was a, very, he was terrific about he it. Was very and, game. Um, yeah. he was very game. So we, you know, so those are the kinds of things that, you know, are complicated, but they're complicated for the art department. They're complicated, you know, for everybody, but he was a great sport. And we had a wonderful, uh, guy who came on as a trainer, Simon Watterson, who's stayed with us ever since then. Who trained him up, and we had wonderful stunt people and doubles, and uh, we got through it gr- in, a, in great shape. And, you know, Pierce was wonderful in the way he just kept going. But it was a logistical nightmare.
0: Oh my God. Oh my <laughs> so God. when
1: you say, Do you like to break them in slowly? <laughs> there's no
0: such thing. I just thought maybe a scene in Em's office oh, or no. a, you know, a scene where just someone opens a door or has some dialogue. <laughs> Not leaping off an airplane or (laughs) diving off a balcony. Something like that. Well, maybe the next next one. Um, But we've we've skirted around a little bit. This is the first time I've spoken to both of you since No Time to Die came out, and we're coming up to Bond at sixty. But right now we don't have a Bond because he was killed fairly unequivocally (laughs) at the the end of that movie. Now talk about your wild creative swings deep into a franchise, what sort of conversations did you have? Because that idea, was, was it Daniel's idea, first of all, to, to do that? Or was that something that the two of you had been talking about for a while? Can we well, do this? Well, Fleming
1: had flirted with killing Bond off a few times. So, you know, it's, it's always kind of been there. Um, but, you know, I rem- remember after Casino Royale, we had a premiere in Berlin. And, you know, after all the furor that went on about casting Daniel Craig, when we opened the movie and he was just an, you know, extraordinary success, Mm -hmm. it was a huge relief when we were traveling around the world and we'd had this premiere in Berlin. And Mm -hmm. I remember we got in the back of the limousine, we were all very happy. and, And Daniel said, how many of these movies am I supposed to do? <laughs> and I was like, oh my God, I wish I'd said 10, mm-hmm. but I told him the truth. And uh, he said, how about killing me off? I said, Dan, we have only, you've just done the first one. Don't <laughs> start talking about killing yourself off. And I kind of pushed it aside. Uh, and it came up again. You know, it came mm-hmm. up again when we were making Spectre. Because he said, you know, this is it. I don't want to do any more. And, you know, I think we should kill me off. And we said, Mm, don't think so. I mean, I think particularly because we wanted him to do another one. Yeah. And uh, so we had the ending in that where he threw his gun away and was going to go off and live a happy life. So sometime after that, when he'd had some rest, I said to him, you know, it's not the end of the story. You can't go out like that. Uh, It's a great starting place to see Bond in retirement and how would he deal with it. So let's think about that. And uh, he said, "Okay, I'll give it some thought." And then Michael and I started with the writers and coming up with where we would go, and we were kind of in that headspace of you know, and it was certainly.
2: We had to convince the studio, yeah. of course, uh, which was—you can imagine their reaction. <laughs>
0: <laughs> they had to be talked down off a ledge. Which I have to say, the first time I saw the movie, I was like, well, "What have you just done? You—you you can't kill Bond. This is this is madness." But. It does a number of things. Uh, I've come to terms with it now. <laughs> you'll be, you'll be the Therapies you'll,
1: work. You'll be delighted uh, in yeah. it. Oh, believe me. I've, I,
0: I was like, you can't do that. You can't kill Bond. But it actually it, it works really, really well for a, a number of reasons. One, it's a lovely capper to his story, obviously. But the other thing is, I think going forward, it introduces the notion of stakes. We've got used to over the years to Bond films and watching Bond walk into all kinds of situations, but we know in our heart of hearts, that he'll be okay. And now, there's always going to be a little nagging doubt at the back of our mind, that no matter who the Bond is, or no matter, yep. how, no matter how many movies we think he has signed up for, mm-hmm. that you could kill that, that actor. Yep. And that's really fascinating. Was that part of your thinking?
1: Well, I think it was more about, you know, I think with the Daniel Craig era, um, it became very much about sacrifice and service and celebrating you know, the people that are the real life people who are out there keeping our world safe, you know. And, you know, it just became even more poignant during the, you know, the whole COVID-19, you know, you think of the people that were putting themselves out there in harm's way, you know, for our betterment. I mean, from the people that, you know, were testing the vaccines to begin with to the healthcare workers to the people that were delivering food to all the people you know it uh so as it turned out you know i think it the film became even more poignant but it was you know even when you look at skyfall you know Mm. when he's running up the cenotaph you know and that beautiful tennyson poem you know it's these in this era it has been really um trying to celebrate people who have put themselves in harm's way for our own safety. And, and Bond sort of exemplifies that. So we thought, well, you know, Bond now has what he's always been wanting but afraid of, which is a family, because once you have a family, you're not just risking your own life but you're affecting the life of other people. And it was always Bond's big nightmare to be across from a villain and the villain saying, well, if you don't do what I want, then I'm going to kill your loved ones. Hmm. So we put him in that situation, directly in that situation. And, um, and the idea that he would have to sacrifice himself because he couldn't be, he couldn't touch <laughs> the people he loves is, is a very you know, beautiful, poignant End to yeah. his reign, so um, it felt very appropriate for the Daniel Craig era, and particularly felt appropriate to the end of this really difficult couple of years, where so many people have been affected by, you know, COVID, and it just you know, at the premiere, uh, you know, it was amazing that we kept the secret. It was extraordinary (laughs) that the people working on the film never revealed it. And it was incredible sitting in, you know, 4,000 people and you could hear them, you know, could hear their, their breath and their heartbeats and everybody going, this isn't happening. This isn't happening. And then, oh my God, it's actually happened, you know, and people being moved to tears and, and also people celebrating, you know, Absolutely, they were out for the first time in many, many,
0: many months. Oh, that was that was so good. <laughs> that, yeah. was so, that was that was so good. But I've got I've got to uh, wrap up in a in a second. But there's 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 so much about the the Craig era that I think is notable. You know, after the after the breakneck pace of the first few uh, decades of Bond, where there's pretty much a film a year for the first for this decade, then it goes down to a film every two years. With Daniel, the pace slows a little bit. That's 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 interesting to note. But what's also interesting to note is what you haven't done in the modern era, which is Quantum of Solace comes out in 2008, which is the same year as Iron Man comes out and launches the Marvel Cinematic Universe. What we've seen over the last 14 years is pretty much every studio in Hollywood scrambling to replicate the Marvel model with spinoffs upon spinoffs and solo films and all sorts of different different movies, and you haven't done that. In fact, you've gone the other way. Since Quantum of Solace, we've had three Bond movies in 14 years. Was that a deliberate thing? I mean, there was talk at one point of a Jinx spinoff. Have you have you had discussions about about that sort of thing? Well, the, 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 the Jinx of sort of was, of course, many years many earlier years ago. than that. Yeah.
2: I think um, the um, point is that we wanted to Focus on Bond and the Fleming Bond and the bonds that we've been working on, and and uh, we have, you know, from time to time, made Bond a little more um, fantasy-like. Uh, maybe Moonraker would be an example, and perhaps at the end of the uh, Pierce era, yeah. we got um, so. But we we thought with with Daniel that we can be really you know grounded he's he makes the character grounded and that's his way of interpreting the character and that's and that's worked well for us and I think that's we wanted to keep that we didn't want to take that anywhere else but but take it to its to the end which we did with uh,
0: no time to die and that could have been diluted with various spin-offs, and an M movie, or a Q movie, or a Money. But it's Penny like movie. doing
1: Hamlet without Hamlet. I mean, you know, come on. It's it. You know, these movies are Bond movies, and they're essentially about this extraordinary character that you know Fleming wrote in in the fifties, and is still going. You know, here we are celebrating our sixtieth anniversary, and it's a real testament to Fleming writing this very, very complex character that could. Could morph his way through so many generations, and you know, and so uh, how could we make a movie which is a Bond movie without James Bond, or to just have him as a you know a minor character? It just doesn't feel right to us. So
0: I, I there I we are. Commend you one hundred percent on that. Uh, more power to your elbow <laughs> in, in that regard. And then the last thing I'm going to ask is, uh, I know you've talked about this in the past. Or, you know, there's uh, there's a vacancy uh, for a bond mm-hmm. right now. Where are we in terms of that? Is there a, at what point do you think a decision will be made around this table about the next person?
1: Well, the thing is, it's not just casting a role. You know, people think that when they say, oh, who's going to play him? When you change the actor, you have to reimagine the direction that the film's going to go in. It's a monumental decision. And it's, it's a decision that, you know, when you hire an actor, you're, you're hoping that you've, you're you're gonna be spending a decade at least with that actor and you're gonna make three or four or five films with them. So you have to kind of think through what is what is the trajectory, what is that actor going to bring? How are you gonna how are you gonna move the series into another direction? So it doesn't it's not just like going flicking through spotlight and saying, oh, there's a guy who's six foot one. Mm-hmm. It's far more complicated than that. So we want to get it right, and we're going to take our time.
0: Do you bring a director in as well? Because obviously Martin Campbell was in for both GoldenEye and Casino Royale. but yeah, He was a good, good one to start them off. You know. Yeah. Not, not, not necessarily throwing his name in the ring for, for the next mm-hmm. one. But, uh, I think but-
1: it's the thing. We want, to, we want to kind of get a sense of where we want to go with the series, yeah. and we need to do that first before we bring anybody else on. Absolutely. So that's something that we'll do probably with Rob and Neil. We'll start the process and then we'll see where we go.
0: Fantastic. Well, guys, congratulations on the first 60 years, 60 more to go, uh, yep. at, at least. Uh, and I'm officially withdrawing from the running because I can't commit, Barbara. I'm sorry. I can't commit the 10 years and five oh. films. I'm, sorry. And, well, I'm and, sorry. and what would you now do you without that beard? <laughs> now you tell us. I'd be lost. I'd be absolutely lost. Barbara, Michael, absolute pleasure. Thank you, Thank so, you much. so much. Thank so you so much. Bye-bye, Chris. And that was Barbara Broccoli and Michael G. Wilson. And that is it for this very special Bond episode of the Empire Podcast. Thank you, of course, for listening as always. And thank you, of course, to Steph and Izzy and Sarah and everyone at Eon and the BFI for making this happen. And of course, to Barbara Broccoli and Michael G. Wilson for being so generous with their time. And now, the shameless plugs. Go to whatson.bfi.org.uk to find details about the Bond and 60 weekend event at the BFI, Southbank and IMAX, of course, and to purchase tickets. Go to royalalberthall.com to find tickets for the Sound of 007 concert on Tuesday, October 4th. Good luck with that. And Matt Whitecross's The Sound of 007 documentary will debut exclusively on Prime Video the day after on October 5th. And that's where you can also find all 25 Bond films. All 25 official Eon-produced Bond films, that is. And of course, if you want to hear Team Empire natter on about Bond, then simply go to empire.supportingcast.fm to sign up for spoiler specials for Skyfall, Spectre, and No Time To Die. And one day we'll get round to the other 22 and indeed the second part of the No Time To Die supporter special, which we just incredibly have never been quite able to get over the line. Anyway, I hope you guys have enjoyed it. That's it for me. I'm off to listen to the Beatles without earmuffs. Take that bond, you big old musical snob. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Bye.